May you, the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing your will. May you work in us what is pleasing to you, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Well, we're thinking about the cross, and the cross of Jesus has been the blazing centre of Christianity right from the very beginning. Jesus' death on the cross is so important and so central to the message of Christianity that even the Apostle Paul would go so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 2, we preach Christ crucified. That is our message. That is the gospel. The good news that would turn the world upside down and spread like rapid fire around the globe. That's the message that continues to transform people and families and communities the world over some 2,000 years later. The cross of Jesus, it stands at the very centre of our identity as Christians and Jesus' identity as the Saviour King that we so desperately need that we love, that we follow. I wonder if some of us today might even be wearing cross-shaped jewellery. I wonder if you've noticed any representations of the cross when you walked into this room, the neat little nice-looking attractive one on the table or the ones precariously balancing on the roof of the church. Just be careful at morning tea. The cross of Christ can feel so familiar and look so familiar and just roll off the tongue in such a familiar way that to many of us the shock and awe factor of Jesus' death on the cross is just lost a little bit. Why would we need a saviour king who rules by dying? who's enthroned on a cross, how does that meet a need? Why would we love a saviour king who is gruesomely disfigured and publicly humiliated and brutally executed? What is to love about that? And why, oh why, would we follow a saviour king who died such a death? What's to follow? A king who has died is surely a king who has ceased to be king, right? But as the Apostle Paul would exclaim in the book of Romans, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Or as he would say in 1 Corinthians, the cross that looks like weakness And foolishness to the world is where we see the wisdom and the power of God. That Jesus would die on the cross as God's saviour king for the world is just remarkable. It makes no sense in the world's terms of what a king, of what power, of what strength looks like. 
It doesn't look wise, it doesn't look smart, it doesn't look powerful, it doesn't look effective. And it's never looked that way. When Jesus said, I am the king, I am the saviour, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter said, you've lost your mind. That's not what kings do. That's not how you say Here's a sword, here's a horse, there's a throne. That's what it's meant to look like. Jesus said, put your sword away, get me a donkey, and the cross is my throne. The foolishness of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God for the salvation of the world, for all who would trust and follow and love this Saviour King. And so when we say of the Lord Jesus, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died and was buried and he descended to the dead. We're stating extraordinary truths about the wisdom and the power of God for the salvation of the world. It's a new picture, isn't it, of what Roberta said a powerful king ought to look like. It pours contempt on all our pride. It flips upside down what we think is powerful and impressive. It attacks all our notions of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. That we would bow our knee, that we would confess with our tongue, that we would proclaim to the world that the one who was crucified is Lord. May we never lose sight of the shock and awe that that should invoke. Matthew 27 is a wonderful narrative that we won't be able to get fully into today, but we'll pick up some points along the way, as we think about the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. One of history's great scumbags walks onto the pages of history and is recited in the creed, as the writer Karl Barth said, like a dog into a nice room, he comes Pilate into the creed. As millions of Christians take his name on their lips and keep his seat in history warm. Uh, It reminds us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate that Jesus' death is a historical fact. It's not an idea. Jesus' death on the cross is not some idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not something that we just think about as a nice idea. It is a fact of history. It's an event. That Jesus was a real person in a real time, in a real place, 
And his suffering was real suffering, flesh and blood suffering in this world as a fact of history. And Pilate kind of takes his place as a figure that helps us realise the nature of Jesus' death. Uh, It's remarkable when you read this narrative that you see Pilate wrestling with the fact that Jesus was innocent. Jesus has come before Pilate and he's there to be convicted. And Pilate, the scumbag that he is, is still wanting to uphold justice. I can't find a reason to execute this man. Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate's wife was terrified. She knew he was innocent. The religious leaders knew he was innocent. They had uh, whipped up the crowd and these trumped up charges. Everyone knew he was innocent. When Jesus dies, he doesn't, he dies the death of a convicted criminal who's been wrongly convicted by a kangaroo court. Jesus dies as the innocent one taking on the punishment that he didn't deserve, that was never his, but he would willingly take for the life of the world. Everyone knows that he is innocent and Pilate says, I will leave this injustice in the hands of the mob. I think he thought he'd found a really clear and clever way out of the predicament that he found himself in when he presents the crowd with these options of releasing either Jesus uh, as the token gift for the people or or Barabbas. Surely they're going to take Jesus. Surely they want to welcome him, this one who's been the doer of so much good. They'll welcome him back into society rather than the murderous rebel Barabbas. It's a no-brainer. That's how we'll get out of this predicament, Pilate thinks. Surely people are rational and they're just and they're going to act with integrity and wisdom. Verse 21. Have a look with me at chapter 27, verse 21. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor Pilate. Barabbas, they answered. What? What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, the Saviour King? Pilate asked. They answered him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. Make the case, state the facts, make the argument, convince everybody that he deserves to die. And what's the case? What's the reason? What's the argument? Well, there isn't one. Just crucify him, they shouted all the louder. It's funny when you think sometimes that if we were there, surely we would be the rational, sensible ones, right? Who would be sitting there going, this isn't right. This is clearly an innocent man. Yet how often in the society that we live in does the reasoned argument win the day? Does common sense even win the day? Surely 
in the culture we live in, shouting all the louder is how you win the argument. No matter what the truth is. Crucify him, they shout. What's the reason? It doesn't matter. Kill him, they shout all the louder. And in a remarkable picture of just how depraved humanity is, the murderer they save and the prince of life they slay. Here is the Lord Jesus, the real person in a real time, in a real place, truly innocent, the one person in all of history who's lived the perfect life that none of them could live, that none of us could live, handed over unjustly to die for the sins of the world. It's not an idea or a theory It's a brute fact of flesh and blood history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered the injustice of being convicted. He suffered the injustice of being lied about and had his character pulled through the mud. He suffered the mocking of the soldiers and the crowd. He suffered the flogging and the beating as they pulled his beard from his face, as they tore his back with the whip, as they kicked and they punched, until, as the prophet Isaiah said, you would not recognise him. Then they stripped him naked in order to publicly humiliate before publicly executing him. And if you think that his suffering wasn't real, this career carpenter with those real carpenter forearms who'd been lugging timber his whole life with his father couldn't carry his own cross up the hill. Beaten, mocked, scorned, publicly humiliated and then gruesomely and brutally executed. He was crucified. Remarkable, isn't it, how that word of crucifixion we still use as the word to speak of the most unspeakable pain and suffering. When we want to picture what the most painful thing in the world is, we say it's excruciating. 
And the reason we still say that is because crucifixion was and is the most painful way that humans have invented to kill one another. Now to the cross to suffocate in your own blood slowly. Publicly humiliated. And yet, as Jesus is crucified, the focus isn't really on the physical suffering, is it? As excruciating as it would have been. We don't hear much about the physical pain that Jesus would have gone through despite what Mel Gibson wants us to think. It simply says they handed him over to crucify him. But what we do see is the way in which the world itself responds to the death of Jesus and how Jesus himself responds to his death to let us know what's going on when he dies on the cross. At this real event, in this real time, in this real place in history, as this innocent man is laid naked on the cross and has been beaten, mocked and scorned, is then crucified between two criminals rejected from this community, cast out of society and put to death. As one later creed would say, it was for our sake. Or as Romans chapter 5 puts it, that Christ died for us. As Jesus goes to the cross, it's not just the physical pain of crucifixion. It's not just the being rejected by the community and cast out of society. It's that in his death, Jesus is bearing the sin of the world and the just punishment that our sin deserves as the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God that we might become the righteousness of God. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. That it was his dying breath that brought me life that we might know that it is finished. Have a look with me. At verse 45. Verse 44, let's see. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. But here's where we see the significance of Jesus' death. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And in about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The crowd doesn't know what they've done. Pilate couldn't possibly grasp the full extent of his actions. But the world, the creation itself, knows exactly what's going on when Jesus is strung out on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. That at the time of the full moon there was an eclipse in the middle of the day and it went completely black. 
It's recorded in the history books as a remarkable event, a cosmic event. But it's not just a natural phenomenon. And it's not just a supernatural phenomenon. It's a divine sign of what it is that Jesus' death means for the world. That when the eternal Son of God is crucified on that cross, all the darkness of separation from God that our sin deserves is poured out on his shoulders. The darkness of exclusion from the God of light and life is the experience of the Son of God on the cross for you and for me. In the last month, as we've been thinking about the nature of God, we've been talking about God who is a relationship of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, in an eternal relationship of perfect love, of enjoyment in one another. And we've talked about how that that is our longing. The reason that we exist is to share in that relationship. That relationship that's never been impacted by disappointment or unfaithfulness. That's never been um, that impacted by selfishness or sin. An eternal relationship of enjoyment, of love, of, of, of uh, self-sacrificial love and glory that Jesus had known from eternity past. Somehow in the mystery of God, he experiences the darkness of separation. The darkness of being cut off and forsaken by God. And friends, can I say that there is no more terrifying a prospect for a person than to face the eternal darkness and separation and forsakenness by God of having to stand before the judge of the world with your own sin on your own shoulders. But that your Saviour King, the Lord Jesus, took that darkness. He took that abandonment. He took that God-forsakenness in his body on the tree in order that we might come to know the eternal love and glory and fellowship of sharing in the life of God in the new creation. Because as he takes all that darkness in himself, in his body on the tree, another supernatural occurrence shows us what it means for us that he has done it. Have a look at verse 51. And at that moment, as Jesus takes all the darkness of God's wrath in himself, as he bears all the sin of the world, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The great no-entry sign that existed in the Holy of Holies, the great sign to the world that you cannot approach God, that you cannot share in that eternal fellowship with God, left to your own devices the great barrier that stood and said do not come close to God has now been torn away in order that we might be welcomed into God's presence, in order that we might know that eternal love and fellowship and glory 
that has been Jesus from eternity past and that he died in order to make available for, for you and for me. As Jesus takes God's wrath at our sin in himself, in his body on the tree, the once for all time perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world, no longer does that dividing wall remain. And instead the gate of glory has been opened. That sin and death might no longer cut us off from fellowship with God. But through Jesus' death on the cross, we're brought close, we're brought near, we're brought in. He took the forsakenness and the abandonment of God that we might know the forgiveness and the welcome of God. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and was buried. The Roman centurions made sure that Jesus died. Having given up his spirit, having breathed his last breath, Jesus died. They made sure of that. As they took the spear and stuck it through his lungs and up into his heart, just to guarantee that Jesus really died. They took his body down just as they did the others who were crucified at the same time. And Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body that was still lifeless and still dead and he wrapped it to be buried and he was buried in the tomb. And so we affirm that Jesus not only died, but he descended to the dead. Christians have struggled with that sentence over the centuries, trying to work out what it is that Jesus experienced in his death on the cross. Did Jesus experience the hell, the abandonment of God, the eternal punishment for our sins? Did Jesus really experience the wrath of God that is reserved for sinners like you and me? Did Jesus really die the same kind of death that you and I deserved? What we're affirming when we say that Jesus descended to the dead is that this was no simulated death. This was no partial death experience. But this was a real death that he experienced in all its fullness. That he went to the same place that everyone goes to when they die, to await the resurrection. But he went there to announce his victory. He went there to declare that death no longer gets the final word on human history. That in his death, death itself has been defeated. Uh, one of our neighbours just over here runs the simulator for the Navy where all the Navy pilots go in to practice war. 
so that they can practice being attacked with missiles and all that sort of stuff. But it's a simulated war, right? They think they, they know that they've experienced the, the war-like environment and war-like conditions so that they're prepared for when war actually comes. But having gone through the simulator, they haven't actually experienced war, right? And one of the things that people have said over the centuries, including uh, our Muslim friends who don't think Jesus actually died on the cross, is that Jesus experienced some kind of simulated death. It was kind of like a death, but it wouldn't have been a proper death. He doesn't really know what a real death looks and feels like. But what we affirm in the creed from the scriptures is that Jesus entered into the fullness of death and that for those three days from Friday to Sunday, he descended to the dead. He was fully dead. He had taken every ounce of death in order that he might declare it finished and that forever he would have changed the way death is experienced for the believer. Have a listen to this quote from Ben Myers in his little book on the creed. This is what he writes. The creed is marked everywhere by an unflinching acceptance of the facts of human mortality, coupled with a straightforward confidence in the ultimate triumph of life, a triumph that's already happened once and for all in the person of Jesus. Where others see only defeat, Jesus' followers now see a paradoxical victory. Where others see only contamination, Jesus' followers see the sanctification of human nature. Where others see only darkness and despair, we see broken gates. Where others see an end, Jesus' followers see a new beginning. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, death is no longer the ultimate power in this world. Death is no longer the ultimate power in this world. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, death itself was now altered. And so, as Athanasius says, we no longer die as those condemned, but as those who will rise. By nature, we are all on the way from birth to death. But by grace, we are travelling in the opposite direction. The Christian life is a mystery that moves from death to birth. At the beginning of the Christian life, we are baptised into the death of Christ. And at the end of the Christian life, we are born into the new life of the resurrection. We are born as though dying, but we die as those who are being born. And so the Apostle Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The crucified Jesus is the Saviour King that we need because it's only in his death that sin and death itself can be defeated. Jesus is the Saviour King that we love because he's the only one 
who could lay down his life in our place. And the crucified Jesus is the Saviour King that we follow because he is the only one who has gone all the way to the dead and come back again for us. And so he can lead us safely through when we would put our confidence in him and when we would bow our knee and confess with our tongue that the crucified Christ is indeed Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom and your power declared and demonstrated so clearly for us in the cross of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us to glory in the cross knowing that Jesus has died in our place and been raised again that we might say, oh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Amen.